You're listening to the Climbing Vines podcast, a series exploring the experiences of Black women on the University of Pennsylvania's campus. Hello, and welcome to the Climbing Vines podcast. My name is Arielle Winfield, and I'm going to be your host. Today, we are talking about intersectionality, and today we have Kim Mutcherson to discuss this topic with us. Hi, Kim. How are you? I'm great. Thanks for having me. Good. We're so glad to have you here. Um, first off, I'd love for you to start with just a little bit of background about yourself so that our listeners can get a good idea and a good picture about who you are and what you do. Sure. Um, so I graduated from Penn in 1994. Um, so just had my quarter century uh, reunion, wow. um, which is really awful to say out loud. Um, I actually moved away from the Philadelphia area after I graduated. I went to law school, um, in New York. I went to Columbia. I went straight through. Um, and then I practiced law for a few years, um, at a nonprofit in Manhattan called the HIV Law Project. Um, and then I decided to enter academia and eventually ended up at Rutgers Law School in Camden, New Jersey, right outside of Philadelphia. So I've kind of come, come back uh, full circle a little bit to, to the Philadelphia area, which has been great. Nice. Um, so can you set the stage a little bit for our listeners about where you grew up and what it was like growing up in the 80s and America in the 90s when you're heading off to Penn? Sure. Um, so it's so funny for me to, to, to reflect on that as this like very, very long time ago when the world was so different. Right. Um, and, and yet it was in significant ways. So I grew up in Silver Spring, Maryland, right outside of Washington, D.C. Um, I um, was a sort of, you know, solid middle class kid. My dad was a physician, is a physician. Um, my mom was a nurse. They came from um, Springfield, Massachusetts. Um, and moved to the D.C. area when my dad went to medical school at Howard University. And my mom was a nurse at Howard University Hospital, so we had a, a really long connection um, to Howard. Um, so I grew up in a really interesting place at a really interesting time. I mean, D.C. at that time was um, definitely a city, and continues to be a city with um, a lot of problems, a lot of issues that a lot of urban centers have. Um, it was very much a chocolate city back then. It is much less so now. Every time mm -hmm. I go back, I'm a little shocked <laughs> about how different DC looks and how different the complexion is of the city. But um, one of the things that was really amazing about growing up down there is that you really experienced these sort of contrasts in, in um, what it was to be a black person in America. So on one hand, you know, I had my dad and my mom and sort of their collection of friends, almost all of whom were Howard University trained physicians, um, and many of whom were people who, I would say pretty much all of them were people who, by virtue of becoming medical doctors, had significantly changed the trajectory of their families' lives. Um, you know, I grew up very differently than my parents grew up. Mm -hmm. um, and so on one hand, you have this really great, um, solid, middle-class black community, which I frankly haven't experienced anywhere else that I have lived. Um, in the years since. Um, and then you also had a lot of folks who were living, um, you know, under the poverty line um, in the in the city limits and who, you know, were not getting the kind of public education that they should have access to, weren't getting the health care they should have access to, sort of all of those things. Um, you know, significant issues with um, drug use, lots of violence 
Um, at the time that I grew up in D.C., the basketball team was called the Bullets. And they, cha- <laughs> <laughs> they changed that name to the Wizards. Um, so it was a really, it was a really amazing place to grow up and, and frankly, a really amazing place to be a black person um, at the time that I was there. Interesting. So with such deep connections in your family to HBCUs and more particularly Howard, what mm-hmm. made you interested in heading to Penn, a PWI? Yeah. Um, so it's funny. I mean, you know, as I said, the trajectory of at least my slice of my parents' family shifted a lot because of the fact that my dad was went to medical school and became a doctor and had his own had his own practice. So, you know, one of the things that was really important to my parents was that my sister and I should have a different experience growing up than the experience that they had had. You know, my dad was one of six, my mom was one of eight. Um, both of them definitely grew up in very traditional patriarchal um, households. They grew up in places where, um, you know, I would say that their families were sort of uh, working class and and sometimes working to get to working class. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, they had a really, their life experience was, uh, in, involved a level of work that they didn't want my sister and I to have. So um, we, uh, they always went to public schools. My sister and I never went to public schools. Um, we went to private school from the very beginning. Um, I went to, my high school in particular was a very elite high school. I'm in Washington, D.C. I went to National Cathedral School. And so from the time I started schooling, I was surrounded by white people. I mean, that's right. just, that's how I grew up. And that's, um, you know, that's the the environment that I was sort of used to. And it was actually really important to my parents, maybe not important, but there certainly was no expectation that I would go to Howard. There was no expectation that I would go to um, an HBCU. Um, I didn't apply to any. And, and actually the only school that my father was really adamant that I applied to for college, and then, then, I, then again for law school, which was really annoying, was Yale. Mm. Um, you know, he, he had grown up in New England and, you know, Yale was this sort of, you know, school on a hill to him. It was so important to him. Um, it's the only place I didn't get into for college, the only place I didn't get into for law school. So mm. it just wasn't meant for him. Right. Um, but so, I mean, I was, you know, there was never, there was never a question about where I was going to go to school, that I was almost certainly going to go to an elite school. Mm-hmm. Um, and by virtue of that, was going to end up at a school that was, that was a majority white institution. Um, and so, you know, I applied to a bunch of places. Um, Penn was very much my first choice sort of from the beginning. Um, um, and part of what's sort of interesting about going to Penn is that I went there with a very clear sense that I wanted to have more of a black community around me than I had had um, at the schools that I had gone to previously. So, you know, my sophomore year, I pledged. I was a Zeta um, because I wanted to make sure that I had uh, that within that huge institution that was filled with people who were not black, um, that I could find that space um, that was very different in some ways than the folks who I had been able to be around in the other schools that I had gone to. Right. Well, you're, you're, you sound a lot like me, actually. Cause oh, really? Yeah. My, all the schools I always went to were private schools, and my high school was a very elite high school, and then Penn was always... Well, not always, but it was my first choice when I really started looking into into colleges. And I always wanted to have a different experience um, on Penn's campus in regards to being more surrounded with black people. Um, yeah. And that's actually one of the things that really drew me to Penn because it was the most diverse uh, Ivy League school 
option. And so I was super excited. I was like, wow, I get to be surrounded by black people now, which right. is really funny to say <laughs> at a, you know, PWI. But right. wow. So being a member of the LGBTQ plus community, um, can you give us a little bit of background about when you first realized or like when you came to terms with it and how did your family take it? And then we'll go into your experience at Penn. Sure. Um, so I was probably 12, 11 or 12. Um, when I had, you know, my first crush on, it wasn't even a girl, it was a woman. It was my, my, um, a teacher. Um, um, and it was sort of one of those things where I wasn't sophisticated enough to call it anything other than, wow, I really like her. She's so pretty. She's so, you know, I love the way she dresses. Um, and then I didn't, I didn't, I didn't come out. I really didn't come out until law school, um, but I definitely I had a, a relatively long term relationship um, when I was when I was at Penn, and so mm-hmm. Penn was the place where I sort of um, pursued the fact um, that I was that I was gay. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it was and it was weird. I mean, when I was at Penn, um, you know, there wasn't a carriage house. There was nothing like what exists. I mean, I go back to that campus now and it just, it feels so different from when I went to school there, um, both in terms of, of race, but also in terms of sexual orientation. Um, so, you know, I remember very distinctly as I was, as I was thinking about this podcast and the, and the conversation that we were going to have, um, there were two columnists in the DP. One was a white Jewish man and one was um, a black woman, both of whom were out. Um, and I just remember, and I think her name was something like Peaches or something like that. It was like really distinctive. Um, and she, she was not a part of the black community at Penn. Um, and there was just, I mean, it was very clear that this was a very shocking thing. Um, I mean, for anybody to be writing something like that, you know, to be writing this like weekly, I think it was a weekly column. Um, but to do so as an out black woman was just unheard of. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's an incredibly brave thing for her Absolutely. to do. I mean, I reflect back on that now and I just think, you know, that that was a real rock star move on her part, but it really, it definitely made her um, stand out Absolutely. in ways that maybe she didn't want to, but. Right. Yeah. So was this column in the DP one of the only spaces for the LGBTQ community or were there other like pockets within the pen community? You know, it's interesting because I was not, um, I mean, I had my first girlfriend in college, but I was not out in college. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I was actually really careful about who I spent time with and who I was around. And also, you know, most of my time, certainly after I pledged, a significant portion of my time was just spent with people who were who were also Zetas. And it just was not... Um, it was not a conversation that people were having. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, you know, when I was, when I was at Penn, um, there was a lot of race stuff going on there and there were, um, you know, a couple of sort of significant incidents that happened, um, you know, on campus and off campus, you know, you know, I was there, um, when the verdict came down in the Rodney King trial. Mm. Um, and that was a, that was like a huge moment on campus and, you know, there was a there was a meeting at Du Bois and and like, you know, all the black people from campus were there. And we were all sort of sort of talking about, like, what what do we do in the face of this um, 
complete travesty, right? This complete right. failure of our justice system. And we had this long meeting and it kind of went around and around and didn't really go anywhere. And then it, it somehow turned into this spontaneous march. Um, mm. And we all ended up like basically marching down to City Hall. Um, it wasn't like a permit or anything like right. that, but you know, like the cops ended up ultimately sort of escorting us and stopping the traffic. It was, it was a very, very interesting experience. And so when I was at Penn, it was much more about, you know, being a black person, being a part of this particular community, um, being a black woman, um, and really sort of segmenting that from, from my, from my queerness. Right. Interesting. So how do you think your experiences compare and contrast with other students who identified as being a part of both the Black and LGBTQ community? Or what are, what are your thoughts about that? Well, I'll tell you one thing, um, and I probably shouldn't shouldn't admit this because I think it makes me look really petty, but um, there were a couple of people, um, one of whom was was in a Black fraternity and another one who was, was an athlete, who was a track and field athlete, and I just knew they were gay, right? Like I just had no doubt in my mind that both of them were gay. And I remember um, as an adult going on Facebook and searching them out mm -hmm. to see if they were out yet. <laughs> just, just to know. One I couldn't find, but the other one was definitely out, which I felt very happy for him and for me. Yeah. Um, so I think, I mean, there were definitely people who, um, who were also gay and black and 100% not out. Right. And and then right. there was no sense of there wasn't even a sense of this like clandestine community of gay black people. Right. Mm -hmm. Like we didn't we didn't seek each other out. We didn't we certainly didn't call each other out, mm -hmm. um, you know, because it just it, it wasn't it wasn't the access that was sort of important at that time. Right. Like it wasn't the thing that we were talking about. And I think it continued. I mean, there are certainly people for whom that continues to be the case um, that that race. Um, and gender, certainly race often um, is, is simply sits above um, sexuality or, or sexual orientation. Um, it's less so now, I think, for a lot of people, which is good, but it certainly hasn't completely gone away, I don't think. Yeah, I would definitely have to agree with that. Because the black community, I guess, put race above whether you're gay or not, um, would you say that the black community was accepting of the, any LGBTQ plus members? Yeah, um, I sort of think of it the way, you know, like lots of comedians will make this joke about how, you know, there's always been gay people in the black church and, you know, like every, you know, every, every other choir director right. is, you know, a flamboyantly gay person and everybody just pretends like they don't know it, right? right? right. Um, and so I think there was a lot of that going on. There wasn't, there weren't people who were, um, you know, trying to out people and mm -hmm. sort of shame them about it. There weren't people who were, um, you know, screaming homophobic epithets, mm -hmm. you know, on a regular basis, which is not to say that it never happens, but, you know, um, it was it was the early 90s. You know, mm -hmm. go back and watch some of the movies. And, <laughs> and yeah, it's, it's painful sometimes to realize how awful some of those films were that, were, that are classics. Um, but it wasn't, it was not, it wasn't a big deal in a sense that people sort of understood if you just don't talk about it, right, and you just mm -hmm. don't force people to confront it, then then everything's fine, mm -hmm. right? And I think that's how a lot of us 
sort of lived our lives at that time. Because there weren't a lot of, I mean, there weren't a lot of role models, right? right. I mean, your, your role models were like, you know, James Baldwin or Audre Lorde, right? Like not right. people who were hanging out in, you know, in super block with you. Right. Um, so it, you know, there wasn't that sense of this is, this is a life that I can lead openly hmm. as a black person. Right. So how would you say the, that that compares to nowadays? Do you think that the black community does the same thing or do you think we're very different in our stance towards it? I think, you know, I think it varies from place to place and, and sort of community to community. I mean, I think we're obviously in a space where um, there are, there's, um, there is a much bigger place for, for queer people of color in general and certainly for queer black people. Um, you know, some of it is just this is the sort of camp thing, right? It's the it's mm -hmm. the RuPaul and RuPaul's Drag Race stuff. Um, I love RuPaul. But I think I know, right? <laughs> Who doesn't? Um, but I think that you know we also just live in a very different world in general, right? right? I mean, if if you had asked me when I was you know in college in 1992 mm -hmm. that if there would ever be same sex marriage, I would have laughed at you. I would have thought that was the most ridiculous thing that you could ever say, right? right. I, thought, I thought the same thing about having a black president. So obviously I'm not sure, good at predicting these did. things. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, but you know, the, the world has changed a lot. And, and I still think, right? I mean, I see it there. There are definitely people in my family who I think had they grown up at a different time would have lived a very different life um, and who didn't have access to that. Um, and so I feel like I was in a little bit of that um, sort of middle generation that started kind of that transition which is good because I, I mean I go back to campus now or I see some of the you know um, some of the students who come to my law school or again if I go back to Penn and I'm, I'm just so happy for people you know I mean I just think yeah. that it's such a different it's such an amazing thing to be able to as a younger person um, feel so comfortable in your own skin Absolutely. And honestly, like seeing that makes me so happy because I see young children like six and eight, you know, being extremely flamboyant and just 100 mm -hmm. percent themselves. And their parents allow them to do that. Society allows them to do that for the most part. Of course, there's yeah. always going to be people that are not OK with that, which right. I mean, personally, I think is ridiculous because it's like this right. has literally nothing to do with you. Right. Just <laughs> let people do what they want to do. Um, but yeah, I absolutely love that there's been such a shift in society and people can be free and be themselves, um, yeah. especially when it's something that is not harmful to anybody right. else. You know what right. I mean? Um, right. Yeah. I mean, I think I mean, to be fair, we should also say, though, you know, that there are incredible rates of violence against black trans women. Absolutely. Um, you know, there are lots of places in this country where you can still get fired from a job or kicked out of your housing because you're gay. Absolutely. Um, so, so we still have a lot of work to do, but it's, it's a very different place, you know, now this country is, and the world in lots of ways is very different now than it was in the 80s and 90s. For sure. Um, evaluating the current state of... LGBTQ, you know, relations in society. Um, what would you say are some of the things that you would like to see change or like see continue to progress? Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, one of the things that I think is really fascinating 
um, is when I was like, you know, in college, I didn't pay as much of attention to it, but certainly when I was in law school, there was some really amazing radical work that was going on, right? I mean, people who were, um, you know, deconstructing all these notions of what's normal and what's acceptable and, um, you know, people who were really pushing us to, um, to dismantle a lot of problematic structures in our country. Um, and then you look at something like the campaign for marriage equality, which in lots of ways was an incredibly um, traditional and formal and um, uh, um, not radical move at all in some ways, right? right? So it's like, and and I think what, what that sort of has revealed is, or I mean, it's been there all the time, but that there are, you know, significant factions within this hodgepodge of people who are all LGBTQ. Um, you know, there's something about race solidarity that I think can sometimes be a lot easier, not easy, but easier right. um, than this other, you know, this other community that I'm a part of where it's like all these different people with these really different life experiences. And so I think one of the lessons from the marriage equality stuff is that you know, there were these gay white men who were so deeply invested in marriage equality um, and who had, you know, were throwing money at all these things. And it was all so great. And like all the, all the couples who were part of the um, who were part of the lawsuits or, you know, long term couples, you know, um, you know, you're, you were going to see anybody who had had like a one night stand with somebody who got to be a plaintiff in these cases. Right. It was right. all very. Um, it was all geared towards a very particular type of person and a very particular type of life. Um, and so we still really see that divide, right? The people for whom marriage equality meant, you know, the only thing that makes me different from you is that I love a person of the same sex. Other than that, you know, I'm another white person and I have money and I'm, you know, making all the right choices and I haven't committed any crimes and I'm this, that, and the other thing. Um, and so there's still this, there's, there are these ways in which it's a really, fractured community and I think it's really hard sometimes for us to um to sort of coalesce because there's there's so many tiers of privilege within the LGBTQ community right definitely yeah and that's hard it's hard to it's hard to organize around that and it's hard for people um to feel like they are all a part of the same fight right. when it's clear that some people really only want little bits and pieces, right? right. Um, and they just want they just want to be treated like the people who are sort of special. Um, and then once they get that, they're not concerned about everybody else. Right. What would you say is the relationship lesbian women have with other people in the LGBTQ community? Yeah, I mean, I think that one of the things that is sort of interesting about being gay and being a woman um, is that it creates this understanding of um, a sort of difference that's often that's often different from what a lot of men experience, right? right. And so um, I do think that there is a little bit, sometimes, not always, but there's a little bit more of a radical edge to a lot mm -hmm. of the women who I know who are gay, right? Because mm -hmm. they're not just dealing with 
um, being gay and whatever that means for them. But, you know, it's all the same things that women deal with on a regular basis, right? Whether right. it's street harassment or, you know, being underpaid at your job or, um, you know, presenting in a way that makes people uncomfortable, right? Because you look too masculine or you do this or you do that. Um, and so, you know, that I think is, again, there's this sort of divide um, that occurs between gay men um, and and straight women too, but also women um, who are queer, um, because men get male privilege, right? right. I mean, they're a lot, you know, even even if you um, are a little more effeminate, um, you know, the reason why you get treated poorly is because you seem female, right? right. Exactly. Um, and that's and that's what people are responding to. So. Um, it's a really, it's a really tricky set of circumstances to be in. And, you know, I'm just thinking about, so when I got appointed to my current job, so I'm, you know, co-dean of the law school at Rutgers Law in Camden. When I got appointed to my current job, I was the first woman, the first black person and the first LGBTQ person to ever have that role, which is breaking records. (laughs) Yeah. Right. In 2019. Right. Um, And, you know, there was all this press about it. And for me, what was the thing that was most salient to me about the first that was involved was that I was a black woman, Hmm. right? Like the the lesbian stuff was like, fine, but it was, it, you know, the part of myself that I think people see immediately and respond to immediately is the part of myself that is black and female. Um, And that's the most visible thing. Yeah, you know, and so and and it's the thing around which I have sort of organized my um, my sense of self in really mm-hmm. significant ways. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and I think that I think that's a tr- that's true of a lot of people who, um, you know, even even if you stripped away the gay part of who I am, I still would be an outsider, right? Right. Whereas for you know a lot of white gay men you strip away the gay part and they're they are set you know (laughs) exactly yeah so so it's a really it's a it's a sort of complicated space i think to Mm. live in often definitely so how would you um i'm I'm thinking about you know the relationships between the women specifically in the lgbtq plus community and um i'm really wondering how like what what would you say is your relationship with trans women in this space because I know there's a lot of I feel like it's really hard for the average person to grasp the idea of a trans person in general but Mm -hmm. um, very specifically trans women Um, yeah what would you say is your relationship um, with trans women specifically Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, I mean I think that's very individual and I think it's 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 very personalized I mean there are obviously women um, with who are, you know, sort of, you know, there's a term for it, right? Trans, trans exclusive, um, uh, feminists, right? And so, um, I'm missing an R there. It should be turf, but, you know, um, women who very much cis women who take the position that trans women are not women, um, that they don't understand what it is to have had, um, to have been socialized as female for your entire life, blah, 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 blah. Um, so there's that sort of group of people. And then I think there's a lot of us who are more of a sort of um, mushy middle. And by mushy middle, I mean people who, um, you know, didn't grow up thinking about trans people and didn't grow up thinking about um, how trans people fit into 
and LGBT um, community um, and people who've really struggled to think about and to accept um, that gender identity and sexual orientation should fit into the same into the same sort of box um, in terms of a movement. I mean, I think you know what I tend to respond to again, which is interesting, is um, that these are black women who are living in a world <laughs> in which black women um, um, get treated uh, more poorly than pretty much everybody else yeah. in this country. Um, and so for me, I definitely feel a sense of um, sisterhood with black trans women. Um, and I think that's, you know, I think it's been an evolution because again, I don't, you know, it wasn't sort of certainly in high school and college and um, law school and, you know, um, transness and trans identity was not a big part of my thinking as a person who was, um, you know, progressive and left. Um, but I certainly recognize now and, and feel very strongly um, that trans women and cis women have an enormous amount in common, particularly those of us who are black women, um, and that we, we gain nothing from trying to segment ourselves um, and that we're, that we're much stronger together. Absolutely. I 100% agree. Um, and it's interesting that you say, you know, there's a group where women are like, trans women are not women. And then there's another group where um, people just grew up not really thinking about it. And I definitely fall into that second group where I just never really considered the idea of transness. As I've gotten older and I've met more people and have friends that are trans, um, it's like, let's just all be together. Like, right. I don't get why, exactly. why that's a, an issue for people. But yeah. um, lastly, just to bring it back to, you know, Penn students and um, college students in general, what advice do you have for current LGBTQ Black students as they navigate their college years, um, those that do feel comfortable being themselves and being open about their sexuality, um, and, and those that aren't, do you have any specific resources to call out or what, what advice would you have for them? Yeah, I mean, I think one thing that I would say is that, you know, particularly for folks who, you know, didn't come out in high school, who didn't feel comfortable with it, who didn't feel safe, um, pick a college where you get to be yourself, yeah. <laughs> right? There are lots of campuses um, where college can be this opportunity for you to explore in a whole host um, of different ways and to really start to um, identify, you know, who you are and what are the things that are important to you and, and how you want to be treated and how you want to move um, through the world. So I think that that's, I think that's a real value um, that people should take advantage of. And not, not everybody can do it. I get it. Right. Um, but if you are in that privileged position where you can make that choice, please, please, please make that choice. Um, for yourself. Uh, college campuses are really different than, you know, when I went to college, you know, from 1990 to 1994. And, you know, being able to find your people, um, what, however you want to define that, um, is such a fundamental part of, um, you know, helping people live a life in which they feel good about themselves, right? right. I mean, it's, you know, it's disturbing to still see the statistics about, you know, um, you know, queer kids who get kicked out of their homes when they come out, yeah. um, the number of queer kids who are homeless, the number of queer kids who, you know, hurt themselves or commit suicide. Or are um, killed by um, other people. 
Right. Exactly. You know, so, um, so, you know, find, finding your space, I think is, is really important. Um, I think also just continuing to, uh, there's something about being a young person that I think gives you, um, the opportunity to be radical in ways that become harder when you yes. get older and you have like a mortgage and right. kids and stuff. Um, Adulting life. Yeah. You know, and so I, I like, you know, I also think that, you know, college is a real opportunity to, you know, read texts that you haven't read before and take classes that really challenge you in the way that you think about the world. I mean, when I went to, when I went to law school and I had, you know, I was a history major at Penn and English minor. I read a disgusting number of books about all sorts of things um, when I was in college, but it wasn't until I was in law school, you know, that I read Audre Lorde. Um, it wasn't until I was in law school that I started, you know, really having language to talk about the complexity of the life um, that I lived. Um, and and as I let you guys know, you know, I went to law school at Columbia, um, and Kimberly Crenshaw. Um, was one of my professors when I was there. And so to have this opportunity to interact with this person who had really articulated this incredibly important concept of intersectionality that was such a, um, you know, it was, it was she, she gave me this amazing language to be able to, to talk about what I had been feeling and how I sort of saw myself in the world and didn't really have a way um, uh, to articulate that. Um, and that, you know, the learning environments are places where you get that. Um, and, 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 you know, I say to my law students all the time, for most of you, this is going to be the last time you're in school. And when you're an undergrad, if you're not going to go to grad school, you know, that's the last time you're going to be a student. And there's so many ways to take advantage of that. Um, and, and they don't necessarily have to be expensive, right? You're already taking classes, take some classes that really push you, um, and that make you understand the world differently and understand your role in the world really differently. Absolutely. Absolutely. And <clears throat> touching on, you know, being a student, I, one of my philosophies, I guess, is that people should always be students regardless of whether they're enrolled in a university mm-hmm. or not. And people should take that opportunity to learn, specifically when you're in school, but when you're not in school, to make sure that you're continuously learning, make sure that you're continuously thinking outside of the box. Um, I think that's a great place to end. Thank you Absolutely. so much, Kim, for being a part of this podcast. We really Definitely. appreciate your insight. So thank you. And everybody that's listening, thank you for listening. And I hope you enjoyed. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Climbing Vines podcast. Please check back on our website, cvines.org for more information about the project.